given to me by Woody Shaw, Sunship, Dizzy, and Billy Higgins, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my jazz heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Folks, Welcome to a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, and I'm joined today by Craig Miller, who I'm going to allow basically to introduce himself because he's been behind the scenes in a lot of ways, uh, collaborating with with many, many famous musicians uh, from the California scene uh, from for the last really probably four four decades or, or more, and uh, he's also a musician at heart, um, and he uh, he does a lot of different things. So uh, Craig Miller. Welcome aboard. Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. I'm happy to be here, Jake. Talk to, um, talk to me a little well, bit. What, yeah. You know, it's hard to talk about yourself, but I will say this, that uh, yeah. I, I've, I've been working with acoustic musicians since about the early 70s. Don't want to date myself too much. But uh, I've always had an attitude, if you're going to work with groups, musicians, singers, entertainers, anybody, you should, re- and you're going to be behind the scenes, you sort of need to know how well somebody does their job before you can decide whether they're doing a good job. So I've always strived to try and find out as much as I can about all the different aspects, and that way you can determine whether the people you've hired to do those jobs can do them better than you, in which case you got somebody great. And if they can't do something as well as you knowing the basics, then you probably should be looking for someone else. Could you give an example of that? Well, um, a lot of, you know, when I first started with David Grisman in 74, I guess it was, uh, he didn't have a sound man, he didn't have a lighting guy, he, he was basically looking for a booking agent like most bands do. And um, in order to find good people to work for you, many times if you don't know what the job entails, you can't tell whether someone's doing a good job. Right. So you have to at least have the basics down and... Uh, Uh, The 70s in California were a very magical time because so many groups were living in the same general area and everyone was out there trying to work. One of the reasons I got involved with the Grisman group in the first place was back in 74, gas prices were so high that a lot of groups could barely pay for trucking their stuff around. And of course, David was one of the first groups to be an all-acoustic group and not have any equipment. (laughs) You know... Before we get, where did you actually uh, grow up? I was born in Chicago. Um, my uh, folks moved to the Midwest, uh, actually Omaha, Nebraska, uh, when I was quite young. And so uh, as soon as I was able to get out of high school, I got out of there as fast as possible. Spent <laughs> uh, some time in Denver going to school and then eventually came out to California in 74. I couldn't have... Well, maybe '73 was the for me that that was sort of the the most uh, 
a year where we where the the ethnic blending of music was was really coming together. But uh, seventy four is not too shabby either. What when you came out there? Were you hip to what was happening out there? I mean, there was no internet. It wasn't like there was, you know, you could get letters of correspondence. Maybe you were already, you did you have relationships with people that were already living in the Bay Area? It was a weird situation. I had always grown up assuming I was going to be a professional musician. It's what I had thought I was going to do from the time I was about 10 or 11 years old. I was, I was a drummer. And... Um, Around the age of 18 or 19, after I first got in some of my really cool, what I considered to be my cool band days, um, I ruptured uh, a disc in my back. Mm. And basically the doctor said, you can't play. And uh, I tried, and it was uh, very painful. And uh, at that point, I was in college, and I changed my major to business and decided, well, at least I wasn't going to be one of those guys that got screwed. <laughs> by, you know, the fast-talking music businessman. Yeah, George Marsh and I went through that a little bit, too. There there are war wounds all over the place. Uh, uh, I Maybe you you have a better perspective, but it, it, after my research, over after 200 interviews with, with so many musicians from all different walks, um, corporations really have never changed. It's just the, it's the size of... Of the of the money now, the the amount of money that that has changed, I, I think that and and that's the exorbitant part of it. But they've always they've they've never given musicians a fair shake. And I my question for you is, um, is that a fair statement? And also, was were, how many musicians were not educated as to their rights as far as their their union membership and what they were due, uh, and how much of that was taken advantage of by the the record companies? Well, it's interesting. There were several um, organizations in the Bay Area during the 70s and early 80s that I was involved with, uh, which were allowing lawyers, managers, agents, uh, and uh, uh, club bookers to come together in different forums and hold these seminars where uh, both musicians and business people could come and sort of figure out what's going on. And one of the things I used to always stress was the fact that if you were a new act and wanted to get publicity and noticed and get on the, you know, sort of get on the, the train, you needed to sign with a major. Now, on the other side, if you wanted, if you had a good local following and you knew you had a great uh, uh, show and, and you were really good at your craft, um, I would recommend going out and building up your audience and doing it yourself so you can make the money. But that was sort of, back in the 70s, that's what the payoff was. You either did it yourself and made money, or you worked with a label and didn't make anything, but you got publicity, hopefully, out of it. Exactly. That's very well articulated. Talking with Craig Miller here. Um, it, it, so, when, when you, what did you sink your teeth into? You had your degree. Uh, obviously, you're a former musician, so you, you love music, and you walked into this bastion of uh, well, Santana was a couple years. I mean, he was already uh, well underway. Cal Jader had been under uh, well underway in the Bay Area. Um, you had obviously the burgeoning psychedelic rock scene. Uh, it, there was just so much going on up and down the coast. I, I don't even know. Uh, I don't even know where you would would have would have started. Was there was there a logical starting point for you? Well, there are two things that were really strange that happened. One was. Uh, after I graduated college, I moved back to the Midwest and started a, a production company and started bringing in acts because there was very little 
middle of the, middle range acts. They had a lot of big name acts and no no name acts, but there was nothing in the middle range like the Sons of Champlin or Quicksilver Messenger or uh, uh, you know I'm trying to remember some of these old great uh, the loading zone. Brought in. Uh, and, and by working with different agents, um, the majority of which were out of Marin County, California, uh, eventually one of the agencies said, gee, it would be a shame. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame you don't live out here. We could really use you. <laughs> and I, you know, got in my car and drove out to California and showed up on their doorstep and said, got a job. And they said, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> but that was, that was one side of it. The other side of it was, I was a nut for progressive jazz. Mm -hmm. Chick Corea, Return to Forever, all that great, you know, really quickly played, you know, just just did something for me. It was the type of music I was playing in my own bands when I ruptured the disc in my back. So given the fact that there was all this equipment problems and gas problems, you know, traveling, to me, Grisman was an acoustic progressive jazz act. And it was the perfect thing to work with for me because I just love that kind of music. All right, let's go into that. That is that's interesting because we we focus on uh, uh, well, going back to your band for a minute. What was the instrumentation in your band? I'm fascinated because I, that that pocket of early '70s. I mean, the word fusion gets thrown around, and some people hate it. Some people think it's fine, but uh, there was the uh, the. Uh, were you playing electric instruments in your band? Oh yeah, yeah, all electric. Uh, but it was, you know, it was that progressive rock thing, really intricate, really fast. Uh, uh, all of, you know, Return to Forever, and and I'm trying to think of some of the other groups. That there was, there's so many that I can't, even, you know, and that's they're the one that stands out the most. But I wouldn't even say that anyone was really necessarily emulating them. There were so many independent, creative people. They were doing their their own thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking even even a band like uh, uh, like the Crusaders, you know, they, they took the jazz off the Crusaders and they became the Crusaders. And at that point it was this sort of the wah-wah, the guitars, and the and you had, the, you know, the, the, the bass, and then you had that interesting uh, trombone, and saxophone uh, combo uh, duo, which was really fascinating as well, but there was just so much energy. It was it, it was it was pure raw emotion. The charts you might have gotten the charts twenty minutes before the session, but people just swung any. You had a swing, you know. That's right. Well, I guess I, we were a little bit on the other hard rock side because I remember people were were uh, comparing us to a cross between Led Zeppelin and uh, and Return to Forever. We got, I got to hear some tapes of that. Not, not <laughs> that our group was was comparable and could, could have toured with those other groups, but right. you know, it's when you're when you're in college, you have great ex expectations of everything. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, and you were having fun uh, doing it um, as well. But but so you took that sort of what was already in your head, the the uh, the music that you loved, and you and you and you get out there and. Talk about the first time that you uh, you met uh, David Grisman and uh, and how um, the Great American Music Band uh, came together. Well, yeah, that's an interesting story. I was working with a lot of different groups. I was working with Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders, not the Grateful Dead. Um, I was working with a group called Sound Hole that later went on to work with Van Morrison, and there was a group called uh, 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 Clover which later became Huey Lewis and the News. There were a lot of great groups that we were 
working with in the Bay Area there. Um, and uh, I got a phone call from a violinist by the name of Richard Green, who I did not know. I had no background in bluegrass or old-timey music at all. Um, if anything, I had grown up in my younger days listening to the Beatles and Ramsey Lewis. Sort of that was my two favorite groups. Right, no, I hear you. So, uh, you know, a guy calls me and, and he says, I've got an all-acoustic group. And, of course, as I said before, you know, that intrigued me. So I agreed to, uh, to have a meeting with him. He said he was coming up from L.A. with his brother who managed him and his partner who lived in, uh, on Mount Tam. And we met at a Howard Johnson. We were supposed to meet at Howard Johnson's at like 1 o'clock. <laughs> I drove down there, and of course, Richard and his brother had, were coming in from L.A., so they were delayed. And while I was waiting, trying to see if anybody was, you know, around, I see this old bearded guy, who turns out not to be that old, but he looked old when I first saw him. <laughs> and we started talking and figured out that we were meeting each other. And by the time the Green brothers showed up, We'd had a pretty good relationship going. And all of a sudden, it was like me and David arguing with Robbie and Richard Green about the future of this band. And it was very weird. And when we left the thing, I basically had a very strange feeling about the Green Brothers just because they were sort of had that L.A. thing going, you know. Which at that time, I was pretty young and just didn't understand. But David was like, you know, it was like we'd known each other for 20 years, and um, he started coming into the office regularly asking me to do things for him, and slowly we, uh, I started working with uh, these different acoustic groups, one of which was, of course, the Great American Music Band. Um, Olden in the Way had already sort of come and gone by that point, but people were still talking about it. And uh, right around that same time, David was uh, met Tony Rice and started putting together uh, his first uh, uh, David Grisman quintet. In fact, I remember him coming to me saying, "What do we name this band?" And I said, "Just name it David Grisman's band." You know, something. And I don't want to put my name on it. You know, he was always. <laughs> but it's uh, it was probably good that we decided that because it's it's uh, ended up serving him quite well over the years. I, I want to go back and get some sequence. There's a few things. This is really, really, really fascinating. So the idea here is that uh, you you did not really get involved with Olden in the way, um, and yet uh, David and, and Richard Green. That's where their relationship started. Before is that correct? Well, actually, I think David had known Richard um, earlier on because I think they had done some sessions together. Um, I, I don't quite remember. You know, you start getting into your 60s and start trying to remember things that happened in your late 20s. <laughs> Right. Well, this is why I'm not real sure of the details. Well, this is um, one of the reasons I like to do this stuff because you're still sharp. You know, 20 years down the road, no way. You know. Well, I know Richard was in C Train. That's right. At, a, at the same time that David was in um, his electric group, um, and again, my, I'm, 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 I'm trying to remember the name of that group, and it's just not. It's a Friday, and I'm not getting it. But he had a group in the Boston area that uh, used to open to the doors and a number of other electric groups. Wow. And I just cannot remember Well, no, that's that okay. Name. No, and there was another band. You Okay, so you were managing Jerry and Merle, and uh, I was... I, I, had not, the, I, was, I was their booking agent. 
you were the booking agent. I, it, this is fascinating to me. What kind of uh, what kind of venues? I, I know the venues they played at, but but how would you decide? They were doing something really interesting because Jerry was very interested in learning more about jazz chords, scales, how they worked. Uh, him, and, you know, Merle was very much a, <clears throat> a foundational guy, and he worked through that stuff with Jerry and John Kahn, Bill Vitt, who was another interview, early interview of mine. How did you choose uh, what venues? Uh, maybe. Uh, not so much in Berkeley or the Bay Area, but but how would you choose their venues uh, outside of of the Bay Area? Um, basically, it was really different than most act, uh, most agents, uh, the way that most agents work, uh, because because of Jerry's schedule with the Grateful Dead and other things he was doing with various other people, uh, we would get a call from someone at some point saying, "Hey, this we want you to book these." dates, these specific dates, somewhere in the Bay Area, or we want to do it here, and they would basically direct what they wanted, and we would usually say, well, where do you want to play? And they would tell us the places, and we'd put it together, because basically at that time, anybody with name value would would take precedent over anybody else that was being booked in those rooms. So there was usually a way of putting together a little tour during the time, and many times we would get very, very little notice that, you know, like maybe a, a month or maybe if we were lucky, six weeks to uh, get some dates put together because Jerry had a few days that he wanted to play with Merle or whoever. Um, and the, and this band, uh, you mentioned sound, something, sound something? Oh, um, relative to me or to... No, that you uh, said before, before the Great American Music Band, you talked about uh, being a booking agent for Jerry and Merle. Sound Hole? Yes, S-O-U-N-D-H-O-L-E. Sound Hole uh, was a local Marin County band yes. that featured Mario Cipollino, younger brother of uh, of uh, John. the Cipollino that was, yeah, mm-hmm. John, that was in uh, Quicksilver. Mm-hmm. Um, and a um, number of great, great, uh, great musicians. And they ended up being the backup band for Van Morrison after they came back from England. Wow. They went to, a lot of groups at that time were going to moving to England to try and get discovered. <laughs> were you at that point? I mean, were you just physically unable to play the kit, or were you still playing at that point too? No, I had given it completely up. Wow! Uh, wow! Just be, you know, like a lot of other things, I had to give up skiing and other things mm. that were just not conducive to having a. Uh, you know, a poor back at that point. <laughs> and I actually have had back trouble ever since. Well, except in '94, they just they discovered they could do a special operation, and uh, had that done. And I really haven't had much trouble with backs uh, since. And in fact, uh, actually did get a a kit from Yamaha and uh, started playing in about the mid '90s, and got myself back to a certain level and realized. This is really hard work, and I have to keep up with it every single day. And that's what I look for in great musicians, those musicians that every single day when they've got time off, they grab their axe and they sit down, and that's how they relax. I've worked with a lot of different musicians, from Stefan Grappelli, you know, some of the really great, great musicians. And they all have a common sort of thing, which is that when they're sitting in their most relaxed or if they're bored or if they need something to do, the first thing they turn to 
is their musical instrument. When you when when David first was uh, coming in to see you at the office, talk about some of the things outside of of music that you guys bonded with. Well, it was a little weird, you know. As you meet somebody, you, initially you're just having a good time, or you either get along with them, you don't, you know, you feel each other out. But in David, in my case, we kept finding out that there were really strange similarities. Um, uh, our grandparents all came from the same sort of small community in Europe, um, and there were, you know, we knew a lot of different people, uh, uh, and and uh, it was just a very, very symbiotic relationship from the very beginning. David had a lot of concepts that he, I mean, he had a lot of strong ideas about things that he wanted to do, recordings he wanted to do, uh, people we wanted to play with, and basically he needed someone to facilitate that for him. And so and we worked very well together, even in the very earliest of days. So let's, let's go back to this, uh, this uh, interesting thing, comment you made before about this idea where you had this a love of progressive jazz, uh, this Return to Forever concept, and, and, when, uh, and when David came out there, his, his all-acoustic band was very much a progressive jazz band, and for my audience, for people that don't, that are not musicians, uh, talk about what you saw in, in that acoustic uh, setup that that reminded you or made it feel for you like it was a progressive jazz outfit. Well, as I think has been demonstrated by a lot of different people, let, let's take the violin because it's very similar to a mandolin and it's a little more known. Um, you can have a jazz violinist, you can have a country violinist, you can have all kinds of styles within that instrument, classical. Uh, and the same is true of the mandolin. Um, the, the, the issue here, I believe, though, is, is that when you take an instrument and play a country song or a bluegrass song or a jazz song, you follow certain idioms, but it's really open to whatever you want to do with it. And I had never heard anyone using, I guess you'd call it traditional bluegrass instruments to play jazz or any other kind of music, whether you want to call it dog music or progressive or whatever. Um, and in fact, in, when David was looking for, you know, most of the material he was performing in the early 70s was uh, his own or uh, traditional or standard. But... Uh, um, they actually did do uh, a couple of uh, covers uh, at that time, um, one of which was a Chick Corea Return to Forever tune um, that I think is on the DGQ-20 compilation. Wow. Again, my brain is not working great today, so I'm having trouble remembering the name of that song. But... Uh, uh, it was always one of my favorites, and, and it, it, it proved to me that you could actually even take a Chick Corea progressive jazz tune, put it in the hands of these great traditional bluegrass instruments, and it came out sounding amazing. And a lot of the stuff David did at that time, he had a song called Thailand, uh, not named after the country, um, as well as... Uh, uh, Dog's Rag, Dogology, and these were long, long songs, uh, 8 to 10, 12-minute songs. And again, most people were not doing those type of opus uh, experiments. 
especially instrumental with no, no vocals on them. So that that was another thing that tied it together. When you were dealing with virtuoso musicians playing instrumental music, there's not a big difference between whether they're using electric instruments or acoustic once you get it processed in a studio. And that is true. I, I'm more interested, to me, it's so, it was part of the times anyway, just the, sort of the expansiveness and the improvisation it was happening all over the place, and then you put people that are that competent together. I am more interested in that first uh, amalgamation of the Great American Music Band, because I believe when I, when I talked to Richard, I asked him if John Kahn had been the bass player, and he said that John was not available and they you that that uh, you guys that you hired Taj Mahal. Yeah, Taj happened to be around, and he he is actually a great bass player, and um, had interest in you know doing something different at that time. In fact, it was funny because when I was in college, one of the first groups that really knocked me out and really made me pay attention was Taj Mahal when he was still working with uh, uh, Jesse Ed Davis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just a, it was a three piece, and it was just a knockout show. Um, and uh, I didn't get a chance to work with Taj when he was working with the Great American Music Band because I came in just after he had left. And Jerry Jerry was a part of that band at the time. A lot of people came in came in and out of that. Um, oh, there you go. The the song that uh, I had suggested the band work out by Chick Corea was Spain. Okay. Sure. But I mean, and, and that's and that's interesting because uh, you know you're not having electric Fender road sounds or uh, uh, it, that that would be, I would love to hear that version because that 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 just they must have turned it right on its head on that one. Yeah, it, it's pretty amazing, and and we did um, we have a I don't know if uh, you're going to back up there on any of this, but David and I released a um, website called Acoustic Oasis a while back, which has incredible stuff from his libraries uh, and a lot of old material that we have found, one of which was a great show of the David Grisman Quintet from 1979 at the Great American Music Hall, where all, a lot of that great music came from. And that exists as a uh, download and a CD, um, uh, Great American Music Band, the 1979 live show. And uh, that version of Spain is on there, so I'll, uh, I'll I'll email it over to you. So maybe you want to play it for your listeners. At some oh, point. absolutely! No, that's that's fantastic stuff. The it, it does strike me though that the band seemed to be uh, it was kind of a you know not uh, revolving door is the wrong word, but you know guys would come in for a tour or for an extended or for a period of time they'd leave. Jerry was in a Taj for a little while. What? How long did that band actually... It's one of the most interesting things because if you do a lot of research on that band, it's just hard to find a lot of concrete information. Um, and I, the yeah. majority of the members all had other things to do and it was very hard to try and schedule any time period when something, you know, when everyone was available. So all of a sudden, a few of them would be available and not you know, the bass player and not this or that. So they'd augment with who was available. And uh, nothing really was really solidly cohesive until the Great American Music Band ended and David started his first David Grisman Quintet. Once he started that, he basically, instead of using guys that had careers and were of 
available, he went to younger guys um, that were available, basically, to try and get them in to rehearse this very intricate material so they could go out and really do a great job blowing people's minds. You uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, Richard Green having that L.A. vibe or whatever. I mean, what, what, how would I, you know... I have this my own interpretation of of LA now, which I mean, you know, it's just. <laughs> now you're going to get me in trouble. No, 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 because I, I live because here now. But hey, back in the '70s, yes. and just like if you follow baseball, there's still an incredible rivalry between the Dodgers and the Giants. Of course, there's always been an attitude about people from, especially the Bay Area, but I mean, uh, from the Bay Area, but especially people from Marin County. And I remember the first time I signed David to a major label, which was A&M Records. I flew down to L.A. to have a meeting to discuss the release of a new record. And I sat down in a meeting with a bunch of uh, suits. And I pulled out my briefcase and I pulled out a legal pad. And I had about, I don't know, 20, 25 questions to ask them about. And they saw this legal pad. And the first thing out of the president's mouth was, wait a second, you're from Marin County. You're not supposed to be organized. <laughs> that's, the, that's their impression of it. Yeah, I mean, and, and what I meant by L.A. Slick is that a lot of the productions that were being done were overly being produced as opposed to my concept, which I don't need to hear all the studio stuff. I want to hear the virtuosity of the musician. Right. I want to hear the beauty of the instrument. I don't want to hear the beauty of a processor, you know. So that was, there was there's, there's basic concepts of, of, you know, certain types of music lends itself to lots of production. Certain types of music and virtuosity, you know, I think lends itself to getting the best sound on tape you can. So inherently within that rivalry, there was a musical um, uh, viewpoint of sort of Exper- experiment and uh, and 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 uh, not needing this the slick studio uh, refinement, so to speak. Where in, in LA it was over, almost overly refined. Where in San Francisco it was let's just let's just let's do it and see what happens. It was kind of a and, and it normally came out pretty pretty spectacularly. Absolutely. Well, but I, I don't want to discount uh, uh, the great contributions from Los Angeles, no. but. You know, there was sort of a hippie culture in in the Bay Area as opposed to the, you know, entertainment business, you know, big business, guy smoking the cigar attitude in L.A. So, um, I mean, obviously nothing is, everything could be generalized to to a point, but um, it was just the people who were making music in, in, in the Bay Area we're not interested in having a, you know, a big time producer come in and put on all these, you know, put on strings and put on this and put on horns. They just wanted to get the music out there. And it was much more uh, internalized, whereas the stuff coming out of LA, you know, they were using a lot of studio musicians to amp things up and adding a lot of parts and writing arrangements for things. And it was just a different way of doing things. Just like Nashville was putting out things uh, at that time that was, Again, completely different, and New York as well. It's so true because uh, you know, I mean, through through my research, you look at it just from the uh, the the ability, the accessibility of the club scene in San Francisco. Uh, you know, just the jazz clubs, you know, Jacks on Sutter, uh, the Both and 
you know, the Nighthawk, Jimbo's Bob City was a little bit earlier than that. You had the Keystone Corner, you know, smaller venues where really big guys would come and play and not get probably a, a, a huge cut of money like they might at a larger venue. Everything's just bigger in L.A., right? It's just, you had Hollywood moved there, Hollywood came there, Motown moved there, and you're right, some of the contributions musically there are indescribable, and that production really lent itself to that, but in San Francisco, I mean, I've talked to guys that used to come up from the BART station, and there'd be a guy playing, you know, a guitar or a dobro on the side of the street, and they'd have to, they might be late for an appointment because they had to sit and, and, and practice with that guy for 20 minutes. You know, it was very loose. It just, it, it was beautiful, you know? Um, there was a very weird uh, situation that I was made aware of very early uh, in the Bay Area which was so different than other places because you had so many great musicians that nobody was being offered any money. Mm. Um, there were just too many people. The clubs at one point were charging groups 50 to to $100 a night to let them come and play and bring their fans in. Wow. Um, and, you know, play, it was a different, if you had Jerry Garcia or somebody like that, you could, you could book something relatively easily. But again... The jazz groups that were coming into town and playing Keystone Corner in some of those places were getting paid maybe half to uh, to less than that than someone going in and playing a normal venue at a college. They were taking advantage of, of the jazz musicians' care. I remember the first time I uh, started working with Stefan Grappelli, I couldn't believe the crappy places they were putting him, and I was, you know, it didn't make sense to me. But at that time, a lot of the jazz acts were being forced into the simple jazz clubs, which didn't have, you know, they'd, they'd sell out the first show and there'd be no one there for the late show. And they'd base their fees on this kind of stuff, and these guys would walk out with virtually nothing. Um, when I started working with David in the 70s, I saw that and went, this is not where we, we need to develop this act. So I spent the majority of my time trying to find pairings for David's band to work with. We opened shows for John Clemmer, for Phoebe Snow, um, Tom Waits, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Virtually anybody that had an audience that I felt if we could expose David's music to, um, uh, that's the way you get people to pay attention to David's music. And... Um, we got kicked off a few tours because uh, the crowds were going a little too too crazy for David and not as crazy for the headliner. <laughs> really? That's interesting. But uh, that was, that was and, and as a result, David was able to do a, a lot of business in the colleges and, and uh, you know, promoted shows and festivals. And we would, we did go into Keystone Corner one time, did dismally, didn't get paid hardly anything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, decided, that, well, maybe we don't need to do that. But at that time, David was also uh, being uh, recognized in the Downbeat magazine for some of his work as, an, as a, uh, had a category of other instruments. So I know the great tuba player and, and David were constantly fighting for top positions. Uh, again, can't remember the name of that great tuba player. Was it Howard Johnson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I, uh, what a, what a classic guy. Yeah, no, the, the instruments that are not, uh, the, the unique instruments to the jazz idiom. But the, the, um, I, I have to ask you a question personally because you just kind of came up, 
you had your own kind of Bill Graham thing going on where you were savvy enough and there was flexibility enough within the industry to say, well, this isn't exactly the same kind of music, but Tom Waits, I mean, I'm looking at Nighthawks of the Diner and you have the entire rhythm section, you know, it's Bill Goodwin and, 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 uh, and Jim Hewart and... So you're, my question is, with those, uh, their managers, their booking agents, you had to work very closely with them. I get the feeling nowadays it's kind of like, it's just much more stratified now. It, whereas before, you, know, you could do something like say, well, okay, you know, uh, we're going to put, uh, you know, Graham would put Malo and the Grateful Dead and Miles Davis all on the same, all on the same, uh, on the same bill to bring in different ethnic groups and it's it i mean bringing different people and it sounded like there was a lot more collaboration within the 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 uh the administrative part of the music scene is that is that fair yes but it was really really being pushed by dollars hmm. and what i mean by that is back at that time in the 70s early 80s the bigger acts were looking to beef up their shows with someone who had an, an additional draw. So if they could hire an act like David Grisman that they knew was going to bring in a different audience and was going to entertain their audience, and they could do it for 500 bucks, which we were willing to do because we needed the exposure, that made much more sense to them than trying to bring in an act that would bring in possibly more tickets, but that they'd have to pay, say, $2,500. Mm -hmm. I see. So nowadays, as you said, it's it, it, now the agencies have gotten big enough so that they're trying to package their own groups um, you know, within the agency or they'll tag on with something else uh, because the record companies are going to work together to, to promote. Um, it's a little bit more big business as opposed to trying to keep the uh, profits going. Talk a little bit about uh, when I talked to George Marsh. He he went on. He was going on a, a little mini tour, like a one night run at at a ski lodge, I think in Wyoming somewhere. When yeah, uh, we've been playing the Grand Targhee Festival. David started there in probably about '76, and we've played there probably every couple of years ever since. Ten a wonderful festival uh, near Jackson Hole, uh, Wyoming, um, and and George. <laughs> You know, having been a drummer myself, one of the great pleasures I had early on was not working with any drummers in David's band. Um, right. But when he finally decided to take on a drummer for the first time in 1985, he had me contact a fellow by the name of Hal Blaine. Oh, I know Hal. Oh, he's not here. I, I know his work very well. Well, I uh, it was one of, possibly one of the greatest disappointments of my life was meeting <laughs> Hal Blaine. Do tell. Um, I, you know, growing up 12, 13, 14, I used to play 45 records and try and play along with it and later got into groups as people do and build yourself up. But when I met Hal, I found out that 20 of my all-time greatest drummers were all him. <laughs> <laughs> he just he wasn't, he wasn't on the, he wasn't on the record. Yeah. Nobody knew at that time, right. you know, back in the day, nobody knew that they were hiring these, these, you know, ringers to come in and do all this music. I, and I, it wasn't until I really met Hal that I realized, gee, I actually was pretty good drummer. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you Hal were. and I have been great dear friends. I, I still talk to him at least a couple times a month. Um, he's retired now. But oh my gosh, that's great. I'm, greatest in the world. I, 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 I would love to talk to Hal because... 
that guy was on. I mean, he he was the other thing about Hal that's and you know this better than anybody. He was a great percussionist too. You know, played yep. tre- tremendous types of different uh, you know uh, percussive instruments as well on, on many different albums, vocal albums, jazz albums, and he was really a he was a he was a trailblazer. Well, if you're a TV fanatic, he also did all of the TV shows like Happy Days, WKRP. Um, uh, just, just every time you heard big tom toms going around on anything, it was usually hell. <laughs> I, let alone, you know, from from all the different. Uh, I mean, he shows up on one Steely Dan record. He shows up on all this different stuff because he was the go-to guy, and uh, just a wonderful human being. But the reason I mentioned him was because Hal um, was only available periodically, and. Uh, at one point, David decided he needed to get somebody full-time that he could rehearse with and not have to fly up from L.A. And uh, that's when we first started working with George in about, I think it was about 1986. And George was with us for a number of years until um, David decided to go back to an all more of an acoustic thing and eventually worked with a fellow named Joe Craven, who's gone on to do a lot of great stuff on his own. And after Joe left the band, uh, we hit George to come back. So this is actually George's second stint with us. And I always refer to George as the greatest, quietest drummer that's ever lived. Um, Having worked with a lot of great drummers, Hal included, I can say the majority of drummers that I've ever worked with have always been much better playing normal volume or loud volume than when they have to play extremely quiet. And George is the reverse of that. He gets better the quieter he is. Yeah, no, and he, I, yeah. I've never seen anybody do that before. <laughs> well, he he even mentioned uh, he said he said something along the same lines when he was in the Brotherhood, Jerry Hahn Brotherhood, that uh, he found himself uh, after a period of time playing louder. He his, he was getting and he didn't like it too much. <laughs> so right. you know he I, uh, yeah. Not that I was a professional. Um, drummer, but I, I know the exact same thing. As rock came in, and you started having to do things in fight situations and louder amplifiers, the sticks were getting bigger and bigger. And a lot of rock drummers were using sticks that didn't even have tips; they were just sort of like, you know, bats. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and that's true because he, you, you would see some of these guys come on the scene, prolific guys like Billy Cobham, uh, and it was just like. Uh, Overstimulation, real loud. I mean, it's, and and don't get me wrong. There's a there's a place for that, but um, there is something very the subtleties of rhythm uh, within the. I mean, in an acoustic setting, it's paramount that 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 percussion is not that high because it it will it would it will just disrupt all the other harmonic things that are going on within the within the group. Well, I was extremely lucky to have gotten a chance to work with some of the great sound engineers in the world uh, during those early days, um, just through circumstance in some cases, and came to understand that it's one thing to plug an amplifier in or put a microphone in front of an amp. It's a whole other thing to get proper equalization on an acoustic instrument, let alone the fact that the proximity of the instrument to the microphone changes the tonality of the instrument. So you put in a a studio microphone on a live stage, the majority of musicians are gonna step up to that and it's just gonna feed back. Mm -hmm. If they know where the sweet spot is, which is sometimes 
sometimes maybe an inch to five inches wide, you can get a sound that is so deep and wonderful that it blows away any kind of electronics that you could ever do. And that was the whole idea of trying to get this great string sound for David Grisman that would sound orchestral uh, when they played in unison, but was crisp and clear and wasn't harsh uh, on the strings when they were playing individually. And it took a lot of work, but we finally were able to do it with uh, Neumann condenser microphones, which uh, David is still using uh, to this day. And he's, uh, you know, gets a great sound because he knows how to work those microphones. You know, um, Craig, as, as we as we wrap up part one with Craig Miller here, I, we have a lot more to get to, but but I, I wanted to ask you, did did David, uh, like you said, there was all these, there was so much stuff going on in the in Marin County. Uh, you know, there was the Ali Akbar Khan School of Music, and I, I I look at those, I listen to those instruments like the sarod and the sitar, and you had Zakir Hussein, the tablas. Has David dabbled in in raga music at any point in his career? A little bit. Um, David decided, you know, a lot of times people would come into town or David would be, um, you know, working with somebody and another musician would show up and he'd say, hey, let's let's cut something. And I'm not sure what the year was, but I know that we put out a record called Dog Duos. Dog Duos. Sometime in the 90s that um, uh, even has a track with Zucker, Hussein, and David playing. Uh, it's got tracks with just David and Vancer Clements, uh, uh, the, the late Jim Boggio, um, and David. Um, what it's called? Hold on a second. Let me see yeah. if I can get a little... You know, we put out probably a little over 100 records now since we uh, started the acoustic disc label. And uh, just like in the old days, I could remember almost every show David ever did. It starts to fade. Yeah, I don't. I I don't want you to apologize for for that either. It's it's. There's no reason to do that. I mean, at this point, uh, I think what you guys have done. It, it takes creative genius on both ends to to keep things fresh. And I, with the uh, digitization of music and the 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 uh, intimacy in some ways being stripped away merely by the fact that you know you have all sorts of electronic things that are you know serving as people. Uh, the idea that that uh, you guys have done uh, an acoustic this mentality and follow through of an acoustic m- music is great. I mean, it, it's it to me it is uh, it is so important for our society to get away from. Uh, the 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 electric sort of you know that wiry um, you know it, it, acoustic mu- acu- acoustic music inherently it just it, it breathes and I think people just need to breathe more <laughs> and that's important you know I think that's a wise wise uh, way of putting it yeah. because so much of it is is just pablum you know I don't know if that's a, a reference that people will recognize pablum used to be a horrible cook cereal that we ate in the, in the olden days. I'm going to start using that now. I'll bring that, I'll bring that back. You know, it's just, it's just broken down to its, its basic levels. And, you know, uh, especially now with MP3s, I don't know if most people know this, but almost 90% of the information on a CD is taken away when you compress it into an MP3. Yeah. You're missing the harmonics, you're missing the beauty. Some people don't hear that. Uh, I luckily have my ears still somewhat intact and can 
can hear the difference. And uh, it makes me kind of sad that that beauty of the studio that has been lost. You know, it used to be you'd pay two, three hundred dollars an hour to go into a studio and put it on magnetic tape. It was costing you about a hundred dollars for every twelve, thirteen minutes of time. Um, and now everybody's doing it on, you know, uh, uh, digital uh, systems on their computer. And although you can get full sound on it, the majority of people don't know really how to get that full sound or care. And, uh, you know, the quality of stuff has, has deteriorated tremendously. But most people don't notice because they've got those earbuds on, which only give you a, a small frequency response, so they don't notice it. Well, Craig Miller, it's, uh, that, that 50 minutes went by real quick, and uh, I feel a little more enlightened. Uh, tablum is going to start becoming part of my regular vernacular. And, <laughs> and, uh, and let's, uh, let's do this again real soon, my friend. Uh, always a pleasure. It's, it's, it's really fun to talk to somebody who's got a background in music like you do. And I, I, uh, I only wish we got your station a little easier here. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. All right, bud.